and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Come to me sweetly this love of great vain. Welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald. And about a month ago I presented at the Sustainable Living Festival on the concept of beyond peak oil to peak monopoly. And an element of that talk was looking at the role of the open source movement and the incredible productivity happening online. Well, uh, the architect of of that new knowledge source for me was today's interviewee, uh, Associate Professor Neil Nyman. Uh, He's the Associate Dean of Academic uh, Programs and the Associate Professor of Economics at the University of New Hampshire. The, the article he wrote was called Henry George and the Intellectual Foundations of the Open Source Movement. And I started off by asking him what inspired him to link an 18th century economist, Henry George, to the cutting edge of the open source online community. Well, you know, Henry George has always been about communities. and. Open source is about communities as well. So I had been doing a lot of work in intellectual property and the idea of what spurs innovation. And I've never really been a fan of this Schumpeterian notion that you have to create artificial monopolies in order to get somebody to invest in a new idea. So rather, I had been doing a lot of work on product platforms and the value of sharing ideas rather than turning ideas into something that's proprietary. So I've been interested in these issues related to intellectual property. And there are a lot of parallels with Henry George and his single tax and the notion that wealth is something that's created by human beings and is not attributed to sort of the rents that are associated with being in the right place in the right time. And so I just saw a lot of sort of parallels between the two ideas. And so this paper just shows how they actually fit together nicely. So, you know, in the 19th century, land was the source of wealth or a primary source of wealth. And now in the 21st century, we think of ideas and intellectual property as a primary source of wealth. And, the, and they both sort of follow the same general principles. In your article, you list some of the, the basic tenets of what George stood for. Could you outline those for us? Henry George's idea was basically, he, he lived in an interesting time where political economy was sort of making a transition between sort of a labor theory of value and the modern marginal approach to the theory of value. And and he was sort of stuck in these two worlds. But he was also a person of his time. And he was trying to understand why poverty existed amidst all of this plenty. He was sort of spent a good deal of time on the West Coast of the United States. And during that time, there was huge land rush And he could see that some people were getting wealthy off the land and others, those who seemed to be producing goods and services, weren't really improving their lot in life. And so he was trying or focused on trying to explain this. And for him, it was rents on land that were reducing economic growth and wasn't making it possible for everyone to sort of rise up and enjoy a higher standard of living. 
And of course, these rents that are associated with land were not the result of productive activity, but rather were the results of, you know, what we might think of as agglomeration effects. The additional value that's created merely by being in close proximity with other people. So George was interested in explaining the rise of wealth as a traditional neoclassical, but not in the traditional way of thinking about neoclassical, where you know wealth is, a, is, is created by an expansion of the division of labor. And by putting people close together, it created an opportunity to further divide labor, allow specialization to take place, and as a result, productivity to increase. But who should gain sort of the advantage from that increase in productivity? Should it be the people who are actually performing the work as part of the division of labor? Or should it be the landowner who, through no effort on their part, just happened to own the right piece of land in the right location where sort of this greater division of labor could take place and as a result extract rents or grab a disproportionate share of the gains, not through their productive activity, but merely because they were there. And and that's basically the central idea behind George. That uh, we should be entitled to the fruits of our labor, that only labor should be rewarded that gains to monopoly power should at best be non-existent, but in reality of as short a duration as possible. And uh, four, you list as the gains from a community should remain with the community, if you like uh, paraphrasing what you just said. So that's what George put forward and what made so much sense to so many thousands of people. Uh, his book, Progress and Poverty, was uh, you know, the, the highest selling economics textbook of the time. And I often like to quote how uh, when he made economics understandable for the everyday person uh, through his 1879 book, Progress and Poverty, uh, it was just six years later that the American Economics Association was formed and the best and uh, most morally malleable academics were hired to uh, to cover up this story in the transition from classical to neoclassical economics. So George was concerned with monopoly when he toured here in Australia. He was very impressed with the strong role of public ownership of railways, electricity, gas and so forth. And uh, within this knowledge was the belief that if the public didn't own these uh, natural monopolies, then rent-seeking would occur and the prices charged would be above the costs required to bring that product to the market. So there'd be excessive profits, which we call here on The Renegade Economist, economic rents. So uh, whilst George was very strong on this, what he wrote in more detail on was something that that brings us back to today's story of uh, the open source movement and the incredible work that's going on in the world of uh, software development from that uh, open source perspective. And that was the... uh Oops, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, that's my wife. Um, hi. Okay. Um, okay, bye. Sorry about that. My uh, 
My wife is in Las Vegas and she's coming home tonight. So she wanted to tell me that she's stuck in Washington, D.C. Oh, talking about public utilities, it's good that America owns so many of its airports, but gee whiz, those flight routes are a mess, aren't they? Why is it so hard to get a flight from one city to another? Direct? Well, it's because of a hub-and-spoke system that most U.S. airlines utilize, which is a way of achieving some monopoly power, right? So if you can control the hub, then you can charge higher prices on all the spokes or all the flights to that hub. So by using a hub-and-spoke system, they're able to dominate a particular city, and it enables them to raise their prices and collect monopoly rents, which is very similar to the story that we're telling with respect to George and the problems that occur when you allow an entity or an individual or a group to gain control over an important resource and monopolize its use. So you're saying that someone like American Airlines has a hub at Washington, D.C., and because they pay rents there for hangar space for their mechanics and so forth, that they get looked after in terms of the aircraft landing slot time scheduling? Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? And that influence then um, filters through to uh, other uh, airlines not being able to have as many flights per hour and thus uh, customers get charged a higher price. Correct. The idea is to prevent a competitive market from taking place. So if rather than having five or six or seven airlines service a city, you only have one or two, then an airline can either create a monopoly or you might have a duopoly uh, with the reduction in competition, they sort of raise fares and make it very expensive to travel to a city or to use that city to travel through to another destination. Well, thanks for spelling that out. Uh, <laughs> the, the role of monopoly seeps into our lives, whether we like it or not. But that's always mystified me in America. I thought there was something uh, along those lines in play. But the good news is, from what I understand in America, that not too many airports have been privatised, unlike here in Australia. Well, you know, in the 70s, the airline industry was heavily regulated. And so the government essentially set the fares. And when the government deregulated the industry, it handed out landing slots. And landing slots are the equivalent of taxi medallions or other kinds of property rights that the government gives. We could think of uh, sort of airwaves as another example of property rights that the government has assigned. And anytime you've got sort of a limited supply well, then, of course, that dramatically increases the price. Okay, well, let's um, head on back to patents and copyrights. Uh, what was the, the difference between the two and, and how can we find uh, some balance between uh, an incentive to uh, innovate versus uh, this need for competition? Well, so... So the idea is that, you know, when we're talking about intellectual property, once I share the idea with someone, then it is out in the public domain and there's no way that I can potentially extract sort of the gains associated with my 
insight or my new idea because others can appropriate it. So the idea is that if an idea can easily be appropriated by others, then who's going to invest in the development of ideas? So by giving a temporary monopoly, let's say in the form of a patent, then you've created an incentive for somebody presumably to innovate. And of course, the more valuable the market or the potential value of the market, presumably the more innovation you'll get. But what we see is that really when we talk about the value of an idea, it's really not the first creator of the idea, but it's those who use the idea in multiple different ways that the original creator never thought of. It's actually the diffusion of an idea or new technology rather than the creation of that technology that has the biggest impact on an economy. And so the problem with a patent or assigning a patent is that by giving someone a temporary monopoly, yes, potentially you're rewarding them for creating a new idea, but you're limiting the subsequent diffusion of that technology and ultimately potentially costing the economy a tremendous amount because that idea cannot be used by others without payments uh, in the form of a license or something else. And as a result, you're greatly limiting the diffusion of that technology, which could ultimately sort of undermine the value of the insight in the first place if nobody else is allowed to use it. And that's really the problem. You know, the other problem is that if you create rewards that are high enough, create a strange set of incentives where... It's the equivalent of a lot. Do they have lotteries in Australia? Mm, do we ever. Okay. So, so you know that, you know, if the prize is sort of a modest amount, a few people will buy tickets or a normal number of people will buy tickets and the odds are whatever they are. And then if there hasn't been a winner for a while, then the pot gets bigger and bigger. And the bigger the pot, the more people want to buy tickets. And of course, you know, what they don't understand, or maybe they, under, maybe they understand but don't think about it, is that the more people that buy tickets, the smaller the chance they have of winning the pot or, or winning the entire pot. And so the problem is that as the pot gets bigger, you have more and more people buying lottery tickets, but their probability of winning gets smaller and smaller. So you've got more money flowing into this lottery and the chance of winning that big pot of money decreases dramatically such that, well, what probably didn't make sense in the first place now really doesn't make sense. And we've sort of set up the same kind of perverse incentives for the development of intellectual property. So if I can come up with a great idea and be assigned a temporary monopoly then I could potentially earn a huge stream of income. And this creates an incentive for a lot of people to try and go in the market and develop a new technology. Exactly what those who traditionally sort of believe in this approach think should happen. But the problem is that the more people that you have trying to invent the same idea, the more resources that you're essentially wasting. So you're sort of pushing out the real entrepreneurs with would-be entrepreneurs who really aren't 
interested in developing new ideas and not necessarily capable of, of developing new ideas, but who enter the market purely because the possible payoff is so large that it provides this incentive for them to enter into a market where they really don't belong in the first place. And so you've got all of these people now looking to develop, wasting resources when really you want you know, a real entrepreneur or somebody who has the skill and the ability and the, the talent and the experience to potentially solve this problem or develop this new technology. And so rather than getting more innovation, really what you wind up is squandering way too many resources. And when you look at it more globally, you find that on balance, you get less rather than more innovation in your economy. We're talking to Associate Professor of Economics, Neil B. Nyman from the University of New Hampshire. And Neil, I've got a a quote here from Forbes uh, where they say of today's 2.1 million active patents, 95% fail to be licensed or commercialised. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, some five trillion's been spent in the last twenty years in R and D. Most of that money has has gone down the tube. So uh, uh, it's interesting when someone knows a Vladimir Putin or uh, a Barack Obama and or a local mayor and gets some sort of monopoly rights that uh, it sets up this hierarchy of control that curtails innovation and uh, I love this line in your article where you say monopoly power therefore may lead to the additionally socially undesirable outcome that the lack of competition enables entrepreneurs to enjoy the fruits of their own incompetence as it may exist along the various stages of the value chain. Yeah so that's getting at the idea that no single individual is good at everything. And so I might be a good entrepreneur. I might come up with that interesting idea that has a lot of commercial potential. But very few entrepreneurs are also good at commercializing their own inventions or seeing sort of all of the applications for their new idea or their new technology. So by giving them this patent right, they could potentially just hold on to the technology or what we're saying to them is, okay, not only be an inventor, but also be a producer and be a marketer and be a distributor and be a salesperson. And you have to be good at all of these things or we expect you to be good at all of these things so society can get the full value of your invention. But nobody can do all those different functions along the value chain Well, I mean, if the idea is that wealth is created through an expansion of the division of labor, then why wouldn't it extend to the creation of new ideas along with the further development of old ones? And so if we believe in this idea, the division of labor, specialization is the source of wealth in the economy, then why would we want to put artificial barriers that prevent that from happening by assigning these monopoly rights to people who are potentially great at one part of the value chain, but probably are not good at the rest of it. And I think that that's a serious problem, which is why I believe that we need to think about a different conception of 
what it takes to sort of generate new ideas and to construct a, a truly creative economy where innovation drives economic growth. And Maddie Maroon's ownership of the Ambassador Bridge in uh, Michigan, Detroit, is just a classic. He's uh, diverted roads past his own poorly serviced petrol stations and so forth. And for all of this poor service, he can still charge tolls that uh, deliver him $100 million per annum. Okay, well, let's move on from the problems to this exciting future of uh, what's happening online. This whole peer-to-peer movement is just so inspiring from uh, Wikipedia itself and the, the spread of information there through to 3D printing, helping to undermine this planned obsolescence that's uh, that's so inbuilt to many of the consumer products we face to uh, all sorts of people working on scientific programs uh, via online uh, platforms so neil how can we um, uh, discuss uh, the development of the open source movement in light of uh, uh, the georgist uh, understandings well you know here we we begin to sort of question some of the sort of basic assumptions that underlie modern economics, the idea that people are primarily, that what primarily motivates people is financial incentives, you know, money in some sense, the reward for effort. But what we see in the open source community that money isn't the primary driver. And in fact, in many aspects of Life today, we see that what, what's motivating people has little to do with money. It has more to do with satisfaction, the ability to make a difference, the desire to make a contribution, to be part of something that's larger than yourself. And the great thing about the Internet or this new technological world that we live in is that it's easier for people to come together and make a contribution to move a basic idea forward. And I think that's truly what's transformational. And of course, the other thing is that by providing this sort of nexus that brings people together, we expect less from each individual than was required before. You know, we think of sort of an inventor as somebody, let's say, working in his garage, and he's sort of creating this new idea from start to finish and everything relies on the knowledge set that he has everything relies on the financial resources that he's able to bring to bear but what we see and using for example um, what you had mentioned with wikipedia right wikipedia is sort of a platform that enables millions of people to make a contribution so rather than one person or a team of people needing the knowledge necessary to create what we'll call sort of a global encyclopedia. Rather, we just need to bring a large number of people together, each having expertise in one specific area. And so once again, we see this sort of enhancing the story of, you know, specialization in the division of labor. I don't have to be an expert in everything dealing with a particular subject. I just need to know one small facet of it because in this network or this platform that exists, we can bring together a larger number of people, each a specialist 
in an even smaller area. So it makes it possible to bring more people together and by bringing all of these people together to actually create a whole that is much greater than the sum of the individual parts, which is what the division of labor is all about. And because this can be done in real time, around the clock, around the world, uh, there's plenty of examples coming through of how, I mean, one of the, the most famous ones is how uh, 80 unemployed engineers built an, an electric car that was five times more fuel efficient than what was on the market uh, in about five months. So uh, once the information structures and management systems are in place, the online community can move very rapidly. And a lot of it is self-organizing, and a lot of it is people stepping to the front and organizing various aspects of it. Once again, if you can break a problem down to its constituent parts and just ask an individual to solve one of those parts rather than sort of a combination or collection of parts, they're more likely to be able to do that. And they're more likely to step forward and say, hey, I've got some time, I'm gonna make a contribution. And of course, I don't mean to sort of say that, oh, everybody's just working for free and everybody's sort of, you know, in this sort of kumbaya moment or whatever. I mean, there are still positive economic incentives about why somebody would want to make a contribution, right? Because in this current networked world where there are opportunities all over the place, I need to find some way to sort of distinguish myself or step out from the rest of the crowd to potentially take advantage of opportunities. So if I participate in an open source software project, for example, and I write some amazing code and some people actually use my code in a product that they're developing, right? They might say, hey, you know, why don't we hire this guy to come work for us? He wrote the code. You know, we've got an interesting business that we're building around a product that uses some of that code. You know, he sort of demonstrated or she's demonstrated her ability to do some amazing work. Let's go out and let's hire them and let's get them working for us. It's sort of taking the concept of an experience good and now relating it to human labor. And IBM's certainly been a company that's been willing to embrace this open source movement and do, do the sort of thing you're talking about. But uh, let's move into this tragedy of the, the commons and how uh, this can be overcome using uh, uh, these sort of checks and balances that the open source system uh, is encouraging, this, this networked uh, future of peer-to-peer -peer interaction. Well, I think what we need to think about is, you know, the story of the tragedy of the commons is, you know, you've got this sort of resource that nobody really owns and so that everybody abuses it. So you overfish the ocean or you overgraze the land or something along that. But I think what's different is in today's environment, rather than having a tragedy of commons, rather you can turn the commons into a productive asset. So what I mean by that, and I like to talk in terms of product platforms, where a company comes out with a product, uh, take the Apple iPhone, for example. And I think I was reading today that Apple has just sold its billionth iPhone, uh, which is an amazing achievement. 
But what's an even bigger achievement is when you think of the iPhone, not just as a smartphone, but rather as a product platform that supports an entire product ecosystem, where the key to be successful for many companies is not necessarily to create the platform, but to create a successful product or an app that works with that platform in that ecosystem. So many companies have become very prosperous, not by you know, trying to reinvent what Apple has done, but rather building a product that's complementary to what Apple has created. And as a result, rather than sort of the more participation you have, the less value there is for the asset itself, we see the opposite occurring, where the more participation, the more compatible and complementary products that are created, and as a result, the more, the more valuable the platform becomes. And so it becomes sort of a self-sustaining virtual circle. And it, it's the existence of the community that creates so many billions of dollars for Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook and the guys over at Twitter. So uh, one of our constant questions here on The Renegade Economist is how do we actually share these platform rents? And there's a growing number of conferences and academics trying to pry their way into this question. Uh, have you had any bolts of lightning on this concept? Oh, I wish I did, right? Because that would that's sort of the, the golden fleece in some sense. Because what we see is there are lots of standards groups that get together and try and come up with sort of a basic set of, of specifications that can sort of serve as a potentially a platform, but usually those efforts don't go very far or they take a long time in order to emerge. And it's really a product that's introduced by a single company that can define a new category that provides that fertile soil that leads to other companies rushing in and making a contribution. And so I don't know, you know, Carl, it's a really interesting question because we see a lot of what I'll call synthetic efforts to try and create platforms, but oftentimes they're not successful. Sometimes it's because of the company or the standard setting body itself, which doesn't want to give up enough intellectual property or doesn't want to create enough open interfaces in order to turn it into something that's attractive enough to get other companies to sort of develop for that platform. But oftentimes you need to de define a new product category and you need to sort of show people the potential of what a platform might offer in terms of value creation that sort of spurs all of this activity. Yes, it's well, unfortunate. In terms of uh, location and scarcity, when we talk about Henry George in his day, there was only one location, but due to technology and these platformed networks, uh, the, the locational scarcity is www.google. 
TikTok.com or Facebook.com. <laughs> so so um, I, I've been wondering how we could actually um, uh, value those domains and then tax those domains. But as uh, my buddy Max Carlson, who listeners would have heard on Big Tech Future, tells me um, as a software guru out of Silicon Valley that, look, uh, uh, those DNS servers will just be switched to another country. So, um, you know, th- they would be able to avoid um, their taxes by uh, changing their domain ownership structure to another country. So somehow we need, uh, if, if we follow that further down that pathway, because uh, it's going to take a few years to get the, the governmental foundations in place, but uh, with all this talk about tax havens and tax avoidance and 2.6 terabytes of data being unloaded out of uh, a, a legal company this week, the, the growing need to target our taxes more effectively on those monopoly rents continues to grow. And if we're going to sign companies up to uh, various tax avoidance regimes and best practices, well, then perhaps they could also be encouraged to sign up their domain ownership uh, regimes as well. Or what if we what if we approached it differently, Carl? And, and instead of thinking about taxes, because I agree, you know, they're just going to move their profits to wherever the tax rates are the lowest. What if we sort of changed our policy towards patents? Or the giving of temporary monopolies. So I'm going to go. I'm I, I'm going to advocate, and I I really never thought of myself doing this, but I'm going to advocate a midway position because for a long time I've been sort of this ideas should be open and free, and I'm not in favor of sort of temporary monopolies and patent protection and so on and so forth. But what if we did the following, which is Hey, if you're a new company or you're a new inventor, you're just starting off, we'll give you, you know, let's say 20 years of patent protection. But the larger your company and the more profits you're earning, we scale that patent protection down. So at some point, it's 15 years. As you continue to make more profits, it's 10 years. More profits after that, five years. And when you reach the size of Google, you say, look, we're not going to give you any patent protection at all in the future. So everything that you create sort of is in the public domain. And the interesting question at that point is, would Google stop innovating or would they just continue to create new ideas and have to work harder to sort of make a profit off of those ideas. Sort of exactly what George had in mind in the first place. So you wouldn't even give them seven years when they're that big. You'd wind it right back. Why not? I mean, I think that they would continue to innovate regardless, right? Because they already have the biggest distribution system in place just to to feed this new development into. Yeah, so they're able to compete. So so they come up with some new technology or some new product. Uh, They don't have any intellectual property protection, but they've got a brand name. Wouldn't they just set up shelf companies, though, that, you know, were owned under some different structure? that would be reading exposés on in a few years about uh, some some uh, cousin of Mark Zuckerberg owning all these companies? 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, I can't disagree with you as far as that's concerned. Right? It's because a tricky one. Anytime you try to regulate, right, they're going to find a way around the regulations. But just, but just as sort of a, a hypothetical, theoretical kind of conceptual thought process, right, that would be one way of doing it, right? So they're making all of these profits that you'd like to tax away because we're giving them, the, we're giving them these artificial monopolies. Well, if we can't take tax them, we can potentially take away the artificial monopoly or make the um, monopoly, the barriers to entry a lot lower so that others can enter and take advantage of their ideas. And if we can do that, then presumably their profits would decrease to a point that we'd reach some social optimal amount, which we could have created with a tax. We're just going at it at the source instead. We're brainstorming on the fly here. And listeners, we're going to take your votes on uh, which system is the best one. Because, Neil, I've just come up with another little angle. Yeah. To finance all three levels of government here requires uh, $500 billion. But the value of Australia's uh, uh, land increased by $525 billion last year. Um, such is the aggressive nature of our uh, land bubble. Uh, the uh, property uh, interests are just unprecedented. They seem to be tapering off a little bit, but uh, I can't see any major changes um, taking place yet. But imagine if we incorporated uh, you know, the other monopoly rents in mining, in oil, in in water trading, in DNA privatization, electromagnetic spectrum, all these sort of aspects would easily deliver us probably 600 $650 billion, somewhere around that mark I'm estimating as I work on the next total resource rents of Australia. Well, imagine if our innovative Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who's um, indicated uh, that uh, the state governments need to utilise land tax more heavily to keep a, a, a counterweight on all of this speculative interest, well, imagine if he dedicated... $10 billion a year to funding open source product development that would um, be would target wherever the greatest monopoly rents were. And so it would be like a citizen's dividend for software developers to pull, uh, to, to hack away at uh, Facebook's monopoly of this, this social networking and so forth. Would that be another angle perhaps we could look at? Because the open source community um, should be better funded. I don't know, Carl. I think I'm now going to sort of, sort of dash your... Your hopes here rain on your parade. Go on, uh, do it, do it. I mean, anytime you're asking the government to pick winners and losers, then you know you've turned investment into a political process. Where I don't know, I don't know what politicians are like in Australia, but what I will tell you, my experience with politicians here in the U.S. is they're just going to use that to the advantage of their friends. Mm. and to the disadvantage of their enemies. Mm. And it's not clear that we'll have sort of an allocation of resources that works to the social good. So once again, in the abstract, I think your idea is really interesting, and I think it has a lot of appeal. But just as you were 
you know, talking about, well, what are the practical implications of what I was proposing and is it really workable? I think the same critique sort of follows your idea as well. Mm. It's, you know, I mean, I, I think you're right on in terms of, you know, if we were to target investment, that's where I think it should go. But the problem is, you know, who's going to do the targeting and what what are their incentives and what's going to prompt them to sort of, um, I don't know if you're familiar in the U.S. when uh, uh, President Obama first became president, there was a big push to alternate alternative energy. And it was a time when solar looked like it had a lot of potential and the government started giving out loan guarantees. But, you know, they were picking, shall we say, not the best companies to give these loan guarantees. And the company that sort of comes to mind is a company called Solyndra, which was already on sort of the financial ropes and the government gave them a huge loan guarantee, and shortly thereafter, the company went bankrupt. Neil um, Nyman, that's horrible. Yeah, I can see that point. As we wind this extended interview up, how about then we adopted open source philosophy in terms of deciding who was to uh, be awarded a share of this $10 billion open source uh, sponsorship for the, for the year or a three-year funding window? There must be something along the lines of... Uh, there's Lumio or the other one, I'm th- I think it's Lumio, or there's Liquid Democracy. There, there's all sorts of online voting platforms that seem to be coming through at the moment as well. Um, you know, another potential idea would be, um, are you familiar with Kickstarter? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so one could potentially kickstart open source projects, right? Where, where let People put their money where they think it has the greatest potential. I mean, Kickstarter is a great sort of equalizer, a great way to sort of bring ideas and companies in contact with potential customers. And it's a great way of picking what's going to succeed and what's going to fail because, you know, in some ways consumers know best. And if they're willing to fund sort of, you know, somebody's idea because they think they've built a better mousetrap than more power to them. And so something in along a Kickstarter model might make perfect sense for what we're talking about. Beautiful. Well, Neil Nyman, is there a, a concluding statement uh, you'd like to uh, leave the audience with? Uh, how can they stay sane in uh, an increasingly testy uh, environment? <laughs> Well, I think that we're going to continue to see the proliferation of open source. And I think that you're going to see that sort of the greatest sources of innovation reside in communities. And I think as long as we support infrastructure that allows these communities to sort of take root, I think that you're going to see more and more open source efforts And I think that that's going to lead to sort of fundamental changes in how we view market economies. Well, thank you so much, Associate Professor Neil Nyman, for this extended Renegade Economist interview. Sure, it's my pleasure, Carl.